Well, if you got one of those bulletins on the way in, there's a sermon outline in there, and I would invite you to pull that out. Um, might help you follow along a little bit with what I'm going to talk about uh, this morning. My wife and I don't have much of our kids' stuff left at our home. I have managed to load nearly all of it into their vehicles as they've come home to visit. Uh, there's a, a few boxes left, but not really too much. One thing that got hung onto, though, uh, for the sake of, of grandchildren coming when they come to visit, is a few uh, boxes of my oldest son, Justin's Legos. I brought a few samples up here. Uh, all of you know what Legos are. Uh, I uh, learned this past year that the summer of uh, 2022 was the 90th anniversary of the Lego Group as a company. Uh, that's the original logo from 1932 to 1946. Uh, and on the anniversary of the 90th anniversary of Legos, I'd read a news article about it with some really interesting trivia. Did you know that uh, Lego manufactures more tires than any other company in the world? Now, obviously, they're smaller than most tires, but in any case, that is, uh, that is true. They manufacture more tires. That Lego bricks are universal. In other words, uh, a brick, you know, the standard Lego brick that you buy today, uh, if you um, have uh, one from 1958 laying around in the basement or something, it'll match that. They fit together. They're, they're universal. Uh, and this is the, the really the mind blower, and this is why I brought six of these up here. Um, six of these standard Lego blocks hold the potential to be combined in 915,103,765 different ways. That doesn't seem possible, does it? That six bricks like this, you can put together in over 915 million different combinations. And yet, that's true. It strikes me as a very unique toy uh, in that there are not many things that have, for all of these years, 90 years, remained unchanged, unaltered. Uh, the price has changed a little bit. You know, I was researching it a little bit. I came across this on the Lego website. That thing is the Titanic, 9,090 pieces. It'll cost you $679.99. $679. Um, I imagine that when Ole Kirkinson, the founder of Legos way back in 1932, he never would have dreamed that his toys would one day, you know, uh, receive that kind of, of price tag. But he did envision that his invention it would be built well, it would endure the test of time, and it would be universal. Universal for years and years to come. And it doesn't matter what generation you are in the room here this morning. You all probably have played with Legos at some point in your life. Um, and likely, too, if you're a parent, you've probably stepped on one with your bare foot in the middle of the night, right? Not, not too much pain quite like that. Legos have become something that everyone knows about and everyone has experience with. And there really are not many things in life like that. Uh, but if you forgive me in advance, I've got to jump to the dark side right away here at the start of my sermon time. Uh, because there is one thing, the one thing that is the hardest and the worst universal experience that everybody knows about and everybody eventually experiences is death. Ever since the, the first couple, uh, 
Uh, death has been a statistic that runs pretty steady at 100%. Uh, everyone knows that's the, the uh, outcome of life, but no one likes to talk about it, except when we have to, like we're at a funeral. Or when you come to a parable, when you're studying through the Bible, that Jesus talks about it. And that's where we are today. Uh, if you're new here, uh, I want you to know I didn't just pick this, ser this passage out. We've been studying through the Gospel of Luke for over a year now. And just working from one section to the next. And uh, this morning we're going to come to Luke chapter 16 and verses 19 to 31. And so if you've got a Bible or the Bible app on your phone or whatnot, I would invite you to join me there. We're going to look at that section of Scripture together. Um, Luke was a guy who did not have the opportunity to meet Jesus himself. He came to become a follower of Jesus several years after Christ's life and ministry had ended. But when he heard the gospel, uh, he responded to that and he put his faith in Jesus. He was a scholar. He was a doctor. Uh, he took on uh, the project of writing one of the four authorized versions, uh, authorized biographies of Jesus' life. And to do that, because he didn't, wasn't there personally, he didn't see it himself, he had to go and interview people. And he interviewed hundreds, hundreds of different people uh, who had been there, who had been eyewitnesses in the first century. And then, under the direction of the Holy Spirit, he wrote it down. And so we've got this book, it's called The Gospel of Luke, that contains all of that information um, that Luke had discovered. It's kind of interesting how there are different things in Luke that are unique. In other words, Luke found some people that remembered stories or remembered miracles or things like that that guys like Matthew and John didn't recall. And today we come to one of those. It is a story that Jesus told, a parable that Jesus told of two men who faced death, whether they were ready for it or not. And uh, I want to look at that with you. I loved hearing Jocelyn's salvation testimony uh, through baptism this morning. I also appreciate that she brought such a huge crowd with her. Uh, all of her teammates here supporting her decision to go public with her faith. It seems kind of fitting that uh, we come to the parable that we do today simply because uh, when Jocelyn made that decision, when she put her faith in Christ, she prayed that prayer in her break at work. It changed her life, but it also changed her forever. It changed life after life. It changed her eternal destination. And I think it's good to think about that. And so we're going to do that together. So if you've got that, uh, your, your Bible there, Luke 16, and we'll start in verse 19. This is how the parable starts. There was a rich man who was dressed in purple and fine linen and lived in luxury every day. At his gate was laid a beggar named Lazarus, covered with sores and longing to eat what fell from the rich man's table. Even the dogs came and licked his sores. Now, if you don't know a lot about the Bible, parables like this one were stories. Stories that Jesus made up to make a point. He was teaching his own disciples. He was teaching the crowd that would follow him, them around. And, and Jesus was a master at uh, storytelling. And every story he crafted was intended to communicate some significant truth, some significant message. Uh, and this one does so through a contrast. Last week we looked at the first part of the chapter. 
And there Jesus told a parable about a rich man and a rather unscrupulous manager. And the point in all that was about money. It was about uh, honoring God with the possessions that we have and thinking about that in those ways. And, and I mentioned last Sunday, halfway through that first part of it, there were some religious um, elitists, the Pharisees. They were the experts. They were the ones that thought they had their lives all lined up just right, you know, that they were right with God and had everything uh, in a row. And they overheard Jesus teaching about money and kind of scoffed at it because here was this homeless guy uh, with uh, a crowd following him who was teaching about money. And um, Jesus knew their hearts. He poked at them in the verses right before. But, and he tells this story. And he tells a story about a rich man. And I think part of the reason was he wanted them to really think about their condition, not that they were rich too, but where they were really spiritually with God. Was it just motions they went through? Was it just a religious connection that they had? Uh, or were they really ready uh, for what comes after this life? And so um, Jesus wanted them to see themselves, and he paints this picture in extremes. So if you got that sermon outline and get some blanks you can fill in, here's the first one. The first extreme is two men who lived opposite lives. Uh, the rich man isn't given a name at all, but his lifestyle is really clearly portrayed. He was rich, and there's nothing wrong with that in and of itself. Uh, he lived a life of luxury. He wore the finest clothes. He enjoyed the best food. Uh, but I captioned it this way, the description for him, one who enjoyed all that money could buy, but had no room for God. Enjoyed all the money could buy, but had no room for God. Now you'll see why I add that disclaimer in just a minute. But this rich man's experience is kind of appealing, isn't it? I mean, that, that's kind of the American dream. It's sort of what all of us uh, have that drives a lot of life. Um, who of us wouldn't want to have enough money to not, not have to worry about money anymore? Uh, we all raise our hand. Uh, who of us... Uh, wouldn't want to be able to live a life that's described as a life of luxury, like Jesus portrays this rich man. It's appealing. And I don't think it's a stretch of imagination to say it is sort of the cultural dream in our world. People that live in the society you and I live in and the way that our world operates today. Uh, you have, we've all heard the phrase, money can't buy happiness. But if you look around and you look in the mirror long enough, you realize that we all try that path. You know, we all try and operate by that. Um, it's the normal way to go about life in 2023. Uh, Randy Elkhorn writes a lot about finances and whatnot. He wrote this statement. He said, seeking fulfillment in money, land, houses, cars, clothes, boats, campers, hot tubs, world travel, cruises, and you can add whatever appeals to you to that list there. It's just what he wrote. Uh, all this kind of thing, seeking fulfillment in all of that, has left us bound and gagged by materialism. Kind of taken captive by that desire for more and more and more all the time. And he wrote this, like drug addicts, we pathetically think our only hope lies in getting more, more of the same. Um, that's the world that you and I live in. Uh, and that was this rich man. And he was obsessed with more. He lived his life for more. And he was one who enjoyed all the money could buy, but had no room for God in his life. Now, in comparison to the rich man is this individual named Lazarus. 
And the fact that he is given a name is somewhat unique in Jesus' parables. There's not many places where specific names are used by Jesus in his parables. Uh, but he does here, specifically names this uh, person. It's kind of puzzling. Different opinions abound as to whether he was a literal person or whether uh, maybe even the person that we're going to look at a little bit later of John in John chapter 11. But I think the meaning behind his name is why Jesus picked that name for his for this person in his story. Because Lazarus was the Greek translation of the Hebrew name Eleazar, and Eleazar means he whom God has helped. He whom God has helped. And I have a hunch Jesus picked that because uh, he wanted to portray this man this way. He wanted to portray him as one who had nothing materially, had, had none of the stuff that the world offers and that the world says that uh, uh, would pro provide meaning in life. But he anchored his hope in the promises of God. He anchored his, his hope in a relationship with God. His immediate situation there is pretty pitiful. It says he was laid, uh, this beggar was laid at the gate of the rich man, covered with sores, longing to eat what fell from the rich man's table, and even the dogs came and, and licked his sores. His immediate situation is just, you know, um, pitiful. He was um, probably... Uh, probably handicapped, and so he got dumped at this rich guy's front gate every day, left in his driveway, um, because he couldn't walk himself. And the image is of a crippled, homeless, destitute man, covered with sores, harassed even by the stray dogs that wandered the streets. In life, you couldn't find more opposites than these two. This rich man that had everything but no room for God, this uh, pitiful poor man who had nothing, and yet, whose name reveals something, that he had his hope attached to God's promises. That's the description of their lives. You go to verse 22 and you find they're contrasted in death also. It says, The time came when the beggar died and the angels carried him to Abraham's side. The rich man also died and was buried. In Hades, and often that's translated in hell, where he was in torment, he looked up and saw Abraham far away with Lazarus by his side. So he called to him, Father Abraham, have pity on me and send Lazarus to dip the tip of his finger in water and cool my tongue because I am in agony in this fire. And here's where the story just really radically shifts, doesn't it? Uh, because the time came when both these men died. The rich man was buried. And that meant he had a, a respectable funeral, you know, maybe placed in a, in a cemetery with a great big tombstone and, and given homage and, and um, uh, shown a lot of honor and respect. Uh, the rich man was, was buried. But it doesn't say that about Lazarus. Um, it just says that he died. And in those days, and in that culture especially, a beggar who died on the street would just be tossed in an unmarked grave, forgotten about. And that was probably how it played out for Lazarus. His body may have been shown very little respect. And yet his experience was something altogether different. It says there that um, angels showed up and carried him to Abraham's side, the hero of the people of Israel, uh, was waiting for him. I put the caption on here, Lazarus died, but then began the best life imaginable, escorted by angels into paradise. 
Now, for anybody that might be a little puzzled by, by this and by the description of all that or even curious about, well, what, is hap- what does happen, you know, when, when you die? What is that all about? I want to take a quick diversion to explain that from the Bible. From the, the very first description uh, of the very first person being created in the Bible when God created Adam, uh, it is highlighted that as human beings we're made up of two parts. God created Adam by forming his body from the dust of the ground. That was the physical part of him. And then breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. That was that spiritual part of him. And and from that very first page, that very first person, we're reminded, and you find it all the way through the Bible, that humans were designed by God to have these two parts united together. Our physical bodies and that spiritual immaterial part of us. But when death happens, a person, uh, when a person dies, those two parts are, are separated. Uh, our bodies begin to decay and return to dust. But the spirit goes someplace else. And a little spoiler alert from the Bible, it's pretty clear that that condition is only temporary for all of us. God designed us uh, to live forever as conscious people uh, in resurrected bodies somewhere. Uh, But that happened to both of these in Jesus' story. They both died. Uh, For Lazarus, death came, he departed his body, was escorted by angels to a better place. uh, Into the the presence of God, uh, the presence of heroes like Abraham. And for him, the suffering was done, the hunger was passed, the struggles of his life on earth were over, and he stepped, maybe it was the first time he'd walked, we don't know, but he stepped into the presence of God. Paradise, alive and better than ever. Uh, D.L. Moody was an evangelist from back in the 1800s, and he made a very famous statement from his own deathbed. Uh, He said, soon you will read in the newspaper that I am dead. Don't believe it for a moment. I'll be more alive than ever before. Earth recedes, but heaven opens before me. That was Lazarus's experience. He took his last breath on earth, but opened his eyes in the presence of, of Jesus. Um, but not the other guy in our story, because there's the other side of the contrast. The rich man died in spite of his wealth, and he entered an eternity of torment and agony. And I, I struck that little phrase in the middle there, because uh, when life is just all about money, like it was for this guy, and obtaining more of, of the stuff that money can buy, uh, when that replaces God in a person's life, it creates an illusion that everything will be okay. Everything will be okay. I've got enough money, you know, and it and sort of delude a person into thinking that even death, even death can't take this away. That's not true. That's not true. Everybody knows it. But having money, like the rich man had money, um, brings that misconception, that, that illusion into life. Somehow wealth lulls us into thinking it's possible to somehow skirt the inevitability of death. This rich man might have thought that. And yet... Jesus tells the story he still died. When he died, he got no escort. Uh, Instead, he woke up in a place separated from everyone. Um, And he was in torment and he was in agony. He was far away from God, far away from God's people, in misery in a place of fire. And that does describe hell pretty accurately. C.S. Lewis was once uh, told about a gravestone inscription that read, Here lies an atheist. Atheist is somebody who doesn't believe in God. 
Uh, the inscription read, Here lies an atheist all dressed up and no place to go. And Lewis re replied somewhat poetically, I bet he wishes that were so. See, according to Jesus, the, the one the Bible says is God, the Son who came here, that everyone has a place to go when they encounter death. And these two guys illustrate the options. Um, and the last part is just really, really important. Uh, I worded it this way. Two men who entered unchangeable destinies. So you look at verse 25, where we stopped. It says, But Abraham replied, Son, remember, in your lifetime you received good things, while Lazarus received bad things. But now he's comforted here, and you're in agony. And beside all this, between us and you, a great chasm has been set in place, so that those who want to go from here to you cannot, nor can anyone cross from there to us. Um, upon death, their eternal fate was fixed. There was no changing that. And now, when Abraham calls him son, that wasn't a, a derogatory term, a put down in any way. Abraham was identifying this rich man as a descendant of Abraham, as uh, an Israelite. Probably a man who was religious. Probably a man who went to church. Uh, he had the right family heritage. He re had the right religious identity to be a son of Abraham. And yet, it didn't do him any good at this point. And Abraham reminds him, you know, what you did in your life is what's shaped what's happening to you right now. Uh, he reminds him that in life before death, you had it easy. But you didn't get ready for life after death. And Lazarus, on the other hand, you know, he had it rough in life, but he was ready. He was ready for what came next. He had turned to God. He had found hope and help in a relationship with him, and he was ready. But once death showed up for both of them, there was no changing that. There was no altering uh, locations. There was no getting out after time served, no parole, you know, no um, help from friends still in the land of the living who could pray and sacrifice them out. None of that. None of that was true. Death sealed their eternal destiny. And the last set of verses might be the most important ones. Um, because... It says in verse 27, He answered, Then I beg you, Father, send Lazarus to my family. For I have five brothers. Let him warn them, so they will not also come to this place of torment. Abraham replied, They have Moses and the prophets. Let them listen to them. No, Father Abraham, he said, But if someone from the dead goes to them, they will repent. He said to him, If they do not listen to Moses and the prophets, they will not be convinced, even if someone rises from the dead. I put that last little paragraph on there that it is response to God's word right now while we're still in the land of the living. Repenting of sin, turning toward Jesus, that is the pivot point for eternity. Uh, the rich guy realized, you know, if my fate's set, I'm going to do all I can to prevent those people that I love from coming here too, having this in their future too. And uh, that runs kind of counter to the perspective that I have heard, maybe you have heard many, many times, of people that assume that hell is in their future. You know, well, at least I'll be there with all my friends. You know, we'll have a great big party. This parable says something very, very different than that. 
Lazarus was there. He didn't, the last thing on his mind was that he wanted anyone he loved uh, to join him there, the rich man's perspective. But notice the conclusion, the very end of that. The rich guy wanted Lazarus to go back to the land of living, warn his family. But Abraham said, you know, it doesn't work that way. They have the law. They have the prophets. They have, that was in Jesus' time, the word of God. They have God's word. They need to listen to that. They need to respond to that. Um, if, they w if they do, if they do, it'll change their forever. And he pushes back, you know, showing a little bit of his arrogant heart still. Um, I'm just certain if Lazarus would come back from the dead, if he would go to my brothers, they would listen to him. But again, Abraham says, you might think so, but in reality, even if someone came back from the dead, it wouldn't change those who are not willing to listen right now to what God's Word has to say. I find it really interesting, and I referenced this earlier, that in the Gospel of John, he records an actual story of something that took place with a guy named Lazarus. And it happened pretty close in time to when Jesus told this parable. Uh, we don't know that they're related at all, but there's just so many things that overlap. John 11 carries all the details there. Uh, this friend of Jesus, whose name was Lazarus, had two sisters. Uh, their names were Mary and Martha. They lived in a town just over the hilltop east of Jerusalem, a place called Bethany. Uh, they were very close. And when Lazarus became sick, he, his sister sent word to Jesus to, to come because they, they were extremely confident that he could do something about that. He could heal their brother from the sickness. And they send for Jesus, but uh, Lazarus dies. And by the time Jesus arrived, he'd been in the grave for four days. I want to read some of that story for you. It starts in verse 17. On his arrival, Jesus found that Lazarus had already been in the tomb for four days. Now Bethany was less than two miles from Jerusalem. Many Jews had come to Martha and Mary to comfort them in the loss of their brother. When Martha heard that Jesus was coming, she went out to meet him. But Mary stayed at home. Lord, Martha said to Jesus, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. But I know that even now, God will give you whatever you ask. Jesus said to her, your brother will rise again. Martha answered, I know he will rise again in the resurrection at the last day. Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. The one who believes in me will live even though they die. And whoever lives by believing in me will never die. Do you believe this? Yes, Lord, she replied. I believe that you are the Messiah, the Son of God, who is come into the world. Interesting dialogue. Mar Martha was convinced that if Jesus had just gotten there in time, her brother wouldn't have died. But he, he, he wants her to look deeper than that and realize that, that Jesus has power not just over sickness. He has power over eternity. He says, I am the resurrection and the life. And the one who believes in me, even though they die, will still live. Will still live forever. Do you believe this, Martha? Verse 38, the story continues. Jesus once more deeply moved, came to the tomb. It was a cave with a stone laid across the entrance. Take away the stone, he said. But Lord, said Martha, the sister of the dead man, by this time there's a bad odor. He's been there four days. Jesus said, did I not tell you if you believe you'll see the glory of God? So they took away the stone. Then Jesus looked up and said, Father, I thank you that you have heard me. I knew you always hear me, but I said this for the benefit of the people standing here, that they may believe that you sent me. 
When he'd said this, Jesus called out in a loud voice, Lazarus, come out. The dead man came out, his hands and feet wrapped with strips of linen and a cloth around his face. Jesus said to them, take off the grave clothes and let him go. To prove that Jesus was not just a, a brilliant teacher and a good man, but God himself who had come to this earth. Jesus does what no brilliant teacher or good man has ever been able to do. He raised this dead friend of his from the grave after he'd been in the cemetery in the ground for four days. And it matches, and I find it so interesting, it matches almost exactly what the rich man and, and Abraham had as that conversation, right? If you just send Lazarus back and talk to my friends, talk to my family, they'd listen to him. Um, and Abraham said, you know what, even if Lazarus were to come back, uh, your brothers would not believe if they will not respond to what the Word of God says. And it's interesting to me that the story shows that that actually is what happened with literal Lazarus. Because one chapter later, in John chapter 12, verse 9, it says, Meanwhile, a large crowd of Jews found out that Jesus was there and came, not only because of him, but because also to see Lazarus, whom he had raised from the dead. So the chief priests made plans to kill Lazarus as well. For on account of him, many of the Jews were going over to Jesus and believing in him. It's just like the, per the parable predicted. Uh, the religious experts didn't respond in awe to the fact that Lazarus had been brought back from the dead. Uh, they refused to believe. They even set out to kill Lazarus a second time, along with Jesus. Real life imitated the end of Jesus' parable. Maybe, maybe to remind everybody that heard him tell that story not that long before, but this is how it goes. It's the way people are. Um, they can listen. They can, uh, you know, even see amazing changes and miraculous things. But if they're not willing to respond to the Word of God, uh, then their future is, is fixed. And all flows from this story that Jesus told about two individuals in stark contrast in the way they lived, in the way they died, and most importantly, in the way they spend forever. Which leads me to how I want to close today. Um, I put a question on that handout, which of the two describes you? I'm not trying to be nosy or uh, expect any type of an answer, but this is a pretty big deal. Are you ready or not? Are you ready or not? Death is the guaranteed universal experience every one of us will face. And then what? Then what for you? Are you ready or, or not? There's some facts I put on there. Um, hell is real. And you don't want to go there. Uh, found one book in my library just dedicated to explaining the biblical truth about hell. It was written by Francis Chan about a decade ago. And I had to chuckle because the opening line in, you know, you open to the, the prologue or whatever right at the very beginning, and his opening line was, if you're excited to read this book, you have issues. <laughs> I get what he meant. You know, nobody likes to have to talk about hell or think about hell or, or anything like that. I get what he's saying. Um, but it doesn't change that fact that it's real. That's real. And you don't want to go there. Um, that might be obvious, but so is this next one. Each of us only has so long 
to respond to God's offer of salvation. You only get so long. Uh, I know this is hard to believe, all these teenagers up here, but I was a teenager once. Um, some days it feels like yesterday, and other days it feels like forever ago. Um, but life goes by quickly. It doesn't seem like it when you're young, you know, and you still got everything in front of you, but life goes by quickly, and it will for you as well. And none of us knows how long life will last. Uh, I've been a pastor for almost 30 years now, and I've done funerals for 90-year-olds, and I've done a funeral for a 15-year-old. None of us knows how long we're going to have. Each of us only has so long to respond to God's offer of salvation. And so here's the last thing. Um, God's Word alone shows the way to God through repentance from sin and faith in God's promised answer. And that's the answer of Jesus. Uh, one of the prophets, you know, when Jesus said, when Abraham said to uh, that rich man, they have the law and they have the prophets. As Jesus made up that story and told it, I think uh, he quite possibly had the book of Isaiah in his mind. Thought of Isaiah 53. And the sixth verse there, uh, Isaiah wrote, We all, like sheep, have gone astray. Each of us has turned to our own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Uh, that was a prophecy about us. We're all like sheep. We all go astray. We all have done our own thing and rebelled against the rules, the standards, the perfection of God. We all have. We all fit in that. But the end of the verse says, the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. That's a prophecy about Jesus, that one day God's Son would come and the sins of the world would be placed on him to carry those away. And in the New Testament, you know, the Word of God builds on prophecies like that. Romans 3 says, We're all sinners and all come short of the glory of God. Romans 6, verse 23 says, The wages of sin, what we earn by our sin, is death. But the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. And Pastor Curtis read John three sixteen already. What an amazing verse. God so loved the world that He gave His one and only Son. Whoever believes in Him will not perish but have eternal life. God's word is pretty clear. It's unchanged for the past 2,000 years. It's really clear how to be ready for life after this life. Death is in the cards for every one of us. But what waits on the other side hinges on what you do with Jesus right now. And that's my challenge to you this morning. I'm going to close by re reading one more time the words that Jesus spoke to Martha outside that cemetery. He said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. The one who believes in me will live even though they die. Do you believe this? That's the most important question we each will ever need to answer. And it alone, it alone determines whether you're ready or not. I ask you to bow your heads. We're going to sing a song in a minute. But I want you to think about that. Um, the Bible is so very, very clear that we all have this problem. Uh, the answer is found in Jesus. We have this problem of sin. It separates us from God. 
but the way to him and the way to life past this life in paradise, in heaven, is just like the ABCs. Acknowledge your sin. Repent of your sin. Turn to Jesus. Believe that Jesus is God's son who died on the cross for you, for the things you've done. And just in prayer, call to him, accept that gift, and commit to live your life to follow him as your leader. That's all, that's all that God asks. That's all that God requires. But you have to make that decision. Maybe you've thought about that. Maybe you know that's sure in your life. But maybe not. And maybe today's the day that you need to. Father, I would pray for every person here. I'm thankful for everyone joining us to, this morning. I, I would pray that, that each one would take a few minutes today maybe right now, to think about whether they're ready, whether they're ready or not, for when death shows up in their lives. Nobody wants to think about it. Nobody wants to talk about it. And yet, we all know it's a 100% statistic. And being ready is the smartest thing anybody can do. There is only one way to be ready. And that's to turn from our sin and recognize and own that we screw up so many times. But Jesus died to save us from ourselves. Save us from paying for that screwed up life and so many sinful choices forever. If we will just believe. Lord, I pray that each person here today would think that through. And if they have not yet, that today would be the day they take that step of faith. In Jesus' name I pray, amen.